0: Hello and welcome back to the Second Dead Current podcast of The Term. Today we are holding a discussion on the recent political and economic crisis in the UK between three students who hold contrasting political views. So if you'd like to introduce yourself.
1: Um, I'm Ollie. I'm the president of Durham University Liberal Democrats, um, therefore I'll be representing the views of modern liberalism in this debate and as an opposition against the current conservative leadership.
2: Hi, my name's Jonas, I am the press officer for Durham's Conservative Society and so I'll be representing the views of
3: at least some conservatives. My name's uh, William Studholm, you know, I'm a independent of any political societies. Uh, I'll be representing, I mean, my own views, I guess, but which some might construe as left-wing for an American.
0: Brilliant, thank you. So I think the most pressing and obvious place to start is the recent and pretty much ongoing crisis of the conservative leadership. Downing Street has now become a revolving door. And um, we're now onto our fifth prime minister in six years. So, my question to you is How would you summarise Truss's 44 day premiership? And considering this, can Rishi Sunak save the government and the Conservative Party's credibility? I think I'll ask that to Oliver first.
1: Well, that's two questions. In answer to the first, summarising Liz Truss's time in office, it was a unilateral disaster. I think that was clear. Even the Tories recognised it was a disaster. Um, Every shred of credibility, economic credibility that the Conservatives once had, she's got rid of. I think the core issue for her was she adopted what has become a Conservative mantra of cut tax and cut spending with the idea this is going to lead to growth. The only problem is, while that may have worked once, we've already cut everything that can be cut, but already have cut vast amounts of public spending since 2010. So you can't wheel out the same policy horse and expect different results. She's more a continuation of an existing conservative ideology that's sort of reaching the end of its time, time of relevance. I and think, then, oh, I think no. as well, just
0: so in response to what you just said, I think that um a kind of maybe a kind of conservative approach is also pragmatism. And I think maybe perhaps she really got that wrong. And in the sense that, you know, it would have been more sensible for her. For the country and also for her leadership to so maybe have been a bit more pragmatic. Yet yeah, she just kind of brought out this experiment, and it failed. Yeah,
1: no, I, I I completely agree. I think pragmatism it, it was once one of the core uh, pillars of conservative policy. But pragmatism is in each situation looking at what's worked in the past and applying it to the present. Except she wasn't. She was looking at things that sounded like they worked in the past. She wasn't considering our present context. She was continuing an ideologically driven, cut tax, make growth, this imaginary of growth. Mm -hmm. But she can't apply that to a context in which it's no longer relevant. And it's not a pragmatic approach. It's a neoliberal approach.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And she's trying to to apply her neoliberal market-driven ideology in a context that's not... If we were the United States with a vast economy, 300 300 million people, maybe these sorts of policies work but we're not. We're
3: it still a highly
1: dependent trade, trading partner, and I don't, think, I don't think it was a pragmatic approach. I think a pragmatic approach for the Conservatives would, would first be to evaluate where we are. They didn't do that. They jumped straight in with you know, a re-entrenching existing policy, and one that hasn't actually been paying off very well. You know, we've seen you know, fairly stagnant economic growth since 2010, so a pragmatic approach, had they followed pragmatic conservatism, would have re-evaluated that and thought, well, maybe a different approach is necessary. They didn't do that.
0: And so do you think that Rishi can save can the Conservative Party and the government?
1: I think he'll unify the Conservative Party because they're under so much pressure. I think that's his first, that's his primary objective now, is to create a cohesive party. That's also the largest threat to his own leadership since mm-hmm. last the last three of his predecessors were pushed out not by policy issues, but by internal party politics. Mm-hmm. So he's going to try and unify that. He's going to try blame everything on the Liz trust government as if you know, members of his cabinet didn't have anything to do that. He's going to try and create a clear you know division in thought, division in time. He's going to border that off and say, no, everything that's gone wrong, that was them. I'm here now. I don't think that's going to work, and I don't think the public's going to buy it, hopefully. And I think he does have a good chance of getting a bit of a pole jump, but the pole jump's only going to last him, and he's only going to survive if he's able to sort the problems. And I can't see, I can't see Rishi Sunak dealing with the cost of living crisis.
0: So, Jonas, what do you, what what do you have to say in response to that?
2: Well, um, surprisingly enough, um, I actually agree with. Um, Quite a bit in regards to Liz Truss's Government. Um, if I were to sum it up, I would say terrible and disastrous. Because um unfortunately with her, it's um she was symptomatic of the Conservative Party being hijacked by a dogmatic neoliberal um free market wing of the party and having them enforce their policies um on the on the rest of the party. So I wouldn't say, um I wouldn't say in response to some of the things that Oliver said, but it's um Particularly, but her policies are particularly reflective of the past ten years of conservative governments, especially the comparison with auster- between austerity um, in closer to twenty ten and what she's and what Liz Truss got up to. Uh, mainly because Liz Truss did some sort of weird mix of Keynesian economics and some sort of free market economics. Mm-hmm. She she cut taxes in order to boost economic growth, and yet at the same time did not cut uh, did not cut spending actually committed to increasing spending in places like defense and price caps and everything like that. So it's this, well, I agree that her actual policies were a lot more dogmatic. Um, I wouldn't say that the austerity of the Conservatives back then um, was nearly as dogmatic and more responding to conditions at the time. Um, in terms of pragmatism, um so, sunak um, does appear to be returning to austerity, which um, is quite a. It seems to be a quite sensible approach when considering the way that debt has currently ballooned, so just underneath 100 percent of GDP. In fact, to the point that if we try to join the European Union today, we'd be rejected. But um, so cuts, yeah, cuts in spending make sense. Um, rep, you know, sort out the public debts, sort out the public finances, and with that, I think soon could easily um restore a semblance of credibility um i would doubt that the conservatives will win the next election but it at least won't be an electoral wipeout.
0: and do you think that cutting public spending is the correct way to deal with the financial crisis in terms of the fact that people some people can't afford to pay afford to pay their bills their mortgage and are struggling do you think that it's correct then for the government not to be giving people the help that they need?
2: Um, I wouldn't say that. I would say that in terms of things such as um, reviewing the spending of large projects such as Northern Powerhouse and HS2 makes Mm -hmm. quite a bit of sense, um, especially when you can redistribute those funds from things which we could do if economic times are better and put them more towards things such as price caps and similar things.
0: Okay. And William, what... What what is your what is your view on the on the recent leadership crisis?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't explicitly say you're cutting taxes on the rich as your means of, you know, I mean, I I I get that it wasn't public uh, opposition that uh, you know kicked Liz Truss out, but when there's It's such an extreme inflationary crisis going on in the UK, and you have a government who, like uh, Jonas said, is under control of these people. Who I I don't think it's dogmatism that makes them, you know, pursue these policies which don't help anyone Mm. and uh, drive the economy down. You know, it's because they represent those who benefit from the policies to the money's going to uh you know inflation stop, actual moves to stop it would be price caps subsidizing people just more public spending you, they're britain's going into a recession the whole world's going into a recession in a recession you have to spend publicly uh to keep the economy from collapsing and uh, the conservatives i think the the issue that they're all bickering about right now it's it's small compared to them losing the trust that they gained from boris johnson's sort of
1: Mm
3: -hmm. i don't know uh promise that they would enact policies that help working people and lower class people um when they are in government and uh, if if they lose that trust and they're just seen as you know the old, uh, these are just a party of of uh, politicians who are owned by uh, corporate class. They're not going to win, and I don't know who's going to win in that situation. Looking at Labor, but uh, I don't know if it'll be the Conservatives.
0: Yeah, I think argue, I think in any political situation, politics is cyclical. People come into power, they have power for a certain amount of time, and then they lose their power. And then, do you think that, that maybe the recent crisis has just shown that this is the end of, you know, Cameron won in 2010, and now this is maybe the end of the kind of conservative era, and we're going to maybe see something else soon?
3: Well, it doesn't have to be the end of the conservative era, you know, it'd be things being cyclical only really happens when each party in power makes things worse, which has been the the case for the U.S. for, you know, the past however many years. And here in uh, the U.K. as well, you know, people don't see inequality just keeps growing. Uh, There's no enormous changes. The biggest promise of change was Jeremy Corbyn, who's been crushed in the Labour Party. Um, So, you know, if the Conservative Party actually writes itself and starts having something to show there's a social contract with the people that they represent, then they could prop- they might be able to be in power for many years. I mean, the Labour Party might become an afterthought if you know they can't mount an actual uh, rebuttal to it. but if they go on being you know flat footed incompetence, then the labor Party will just win because people are angry with the conservatives. That's how it happens in the u s as well
0: mm-hmm. okay, so kind of leading on from. What we've just discussed, looking at, um, kind of we've already mentioned, some of the Sunak's cabinet, um, there's already been some controversy, controversy around his cabinet appointments. I think most particularly Swella Braverman. And um, given that she breached ministerial co- code and holds extreme views, especially regarding immigration, can she still be respected in such an important role? as Home
2: Secretary. I'll come to Jonas first. That's okay. Um yeah, sure. Uh in terms of Surla Braverman's appointment, um, I mean it seems that the it seems that the reason for it was to kind of say placate, uh, placate the um the ELG, the hard rights of the Conservative Party, and um soon like having having like having put her in place. Um kind of minimize the challenge of Boris Johnson. And some could even argue that that's uh, a deal done with Braverman or something would have um prevented Boris from actually being able to contend against Sunak. But um it her her appointment was more a political necessity, I I suppose, like Sunak wasn't in a particularly strong position to just stack his cabinet full of his supporters. Liz trust tried to do that and see how that works out for her. So, I can whilst, it, whilst she's perhaps not the best face of the Conservative Party, it makes sense that um it, it makes sense like similar to um, similar to Boris Johnson and uh, Theresa May when Theresa May w- made Boris uh, the foreign secretary. It's mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, whether whether she can be whether she can be respected um, in terms of in terms of the current um, media that's been um, has been against her, um, I'm not particularly sure. So we <laughs> don't know whether she'll be in there for much longer.
0: Well, I mean, for there was um, this is a quote from uh, what she said in a committee was that she had a, that basically her dream was to see the front page of the Daily Telegraph other flight taking immigrants to rwanda and i think that given that she is like she's a second generation immigrant in this country i i just don't i don't understand how she how she can kind of make make those claims i don't know what's what's your thought on that policy which many see as a complete violation of human rights uh,
2: in terms of in terms of her statements or in terms of her, of the actual rwanda policy
0: in terms of the actual rwanda policy
2: um, I mean, it's it's trying. It's in a way, it's being somewhat similar to the Australian system. In that it provides a good deterrent from Im- uh, for immigrants to come in, and I suppose the idea that you'll get shipped across halfway across the world is quite an effective deterrent. So, I'm sure if it was properly organised, it would be quite an effective policy. Whether it's whether it's um,
0: I don't know. I I I, I,
2: I take issue with. I take issue with the idea that sending people off to one of Africa's um, most developing economies is some sort of human rights violation. In that people people there aren't exactly going to live aren't exactly going to live in fear or anything like that. It's
0: yeah. So, so you think that that the UK shouldn't shouldn't help immigrants? That we shouldn't shouldn't take that we shouldn't take them in.
2: I think I think we should take immigrants in. I think we should take legal immigrants in. Um, I don't think uh, I would question the reason why lots of people need, feel the need to go um, over the channel by boat legally, um, and I question how they organise that. Mm-hmm. So I think I think if um, I think we should promote legal channels um, a bit more, and um, if. If, if, people, if people can't get in through legal means alone, but if, through legal means, then I don't think that we should make exceptions for people just because they've decided to break the law.
0: I'll come to Oliver now.
1: It's a couple items, and I want to go back through them chronologically. So the first thing you said is you justified the appointment of Su- Suella Braverman as an attempt to unify the Conservative Party. You, that is effectively saying the party over country. She... Rishi Sunak in that appointment is choosing his position rather than the interests of the country. So that's, that's naturally a, a very unstable position for him to take and one that I think is, is inevitably regrettable. And then moving on to the, the Rwanda issue, I think you're right to separate between um, discourse and what she says and policy. So I'm gonna to come to the first discourse first, where she talks about immigration constructs it as illegality the way the language she uses she uses words like invasion it's not an invasion we these people are coming to british soil many of them to apply to apply to get status through legal means things you have to get here first or you can do it in a foreign country you're much more likely to be legally accepted if you're already in britain and the process is much easier it's an incredibly difficult process to apply through so they're not breaking the law and also it's a there is, if these people, you say that it's fine going to Rwanda, you know, it's a great country. And I'm sure that is the case for many people who live in Rwanda. And I'm sure they're very proud to be Rwandan. However, if these people wanted to go to Rwanda, they wouldn't have come all the way to Europe. Yeah. They don't want to live in Rwanda. They've made a very treacherous journey. They've left their homes behind. No one, no one, it's not a quick decision to become an immigrant, to leave everyone you know, to leave your family, to leave your home. To leave the society you were brought up in. We're constructing them as if they should be grateful to be here. But actually, how we're not considering the fact that these people and the, these people have made an incredibly difficult decision. And it's a decision that they definitely won't have taken like, lightly. And the idea that we can just put them on a plane and ship them off to Rwanda, which many human rights organizations have already come out of again. And also, I might add, Britain has signed the Geneva Convention. And as part of that, anyone who did, it, we agreed in 1957, I believe, that anyone who's in fear of returning to their country of origin is therefore can be recognized legally in the UK. Now there is a process to that, but the idea that people should just live in camps in France or we should build tents in Britain and we should house these people in ways that you wouldn't wish to be housed, that totally fails to recognize their their status as asylum seekers. And even if they are economic immigrants, which seems to be purported to be some terrible thing, you know, these economic Im- immigrants, they're coming from economies that are absolutely struggling, economies where famine is a very real thing. There was a famine in our country. We wouldn't we would hope that the rest of the world wouldn't turn its back on us. I think this also adds into the fact that any, any talk about cutting foreign aid by the Conservatives is an incredibly dangerous move, because it's only going to serve to reproduce the issues that we're already seeing. And then you did say take legal immigrants to get legal status is a process that can take years and to be put in tents or shipped off to rwanda that's not a solution a solution to, is instill a sensible bureaucracy that recognizes people's status not as bodies but as beings, people i think until we do that there's going to be no productive movement on
0: immigration um and William, I think maybe your insight might be quite um interesting on this, especially um in America, the debate on illegal immigration, you know, ideas and arguments that were proposed by Trump um led to a lot of backlash from the Democrats. So so what 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 is what's your opinion on this?
3: Well, in America, uh immigration's been, you know, one of the main issues that politicians use for, I mean, since the country was founded almost, you know, it doesn't, I'll go back to Jonas and uh, Oliver later, but uh, I'll go to Jonas now and Oliver later, but uh, from what you said for why, you know, why would a second generation immigrant be so opposed to immigration in America? This is just, you know, the natural (laughs) process that happens always where Anyone who, uh, anyone who is or comes from an immigrant background in America, which is you know the majority of the population, then their children, their grandchildren, they <laughs> believe that they have the sole right to that country. They need to uh, keep keep it that way. They think that oh, I can't let anyone else get this opportunity. And so, you know, they don't want it. Now, it's not that as simple and aggressive sentiment for all, you know, anti-immigration thought. A country has a right to control immigration into it, but especially in the sense of immigration to Britain and America, and I mean, Europe in general, it's it's a way to create a sort of se- a secondary source of labor that is easier to discipline easier to pay less um they come from countries which uh are underfunded underdeveloped uh basically you know the <laughs> parasitized by uh the main countries that uh these immigrants are going to uh you know they no longer have to uh use labor over there they can import the labor over to their countries and then uh, uh, have them work for less money uh at home and if you know allowing uh eventual citizenship or their children's become full-blown citizens it's in America, at least, it's never been a problem for the main uh, money to interest just because there's always more uh, people who are willing to come uh, because of situations abroad. I think that Swallow Braverman is actually probably a good choice for the conservatives because uh, there are – I think there was an opinion poll that uh, came out a few days ago that 75% or something of uh, British people are believe that there's no control at the border. Um, for the government since Brexit has had no control. And so which government is that? It's the conservatives. So putting the most explicitly, you know, brash, you know, even if someone says, oh, Jesus Christ, this person is a little extreme. They'll think at least Rishi or whoever is putting her in there is, go- is, is, is concerned about this and will help it out. I think it's a good choice for them. Uh, it's similar to Trump. Uh, I mean, Trump didn't actually win the election, but yeah. I mean, we want to talk about that. But he he got enough votes based off of very, very hardline immigration, um, immigration uh, rhetoric that wasn't really seen before. I, I think it could help be a public opinion sort of bedrock for the conservative party. Uh, so, you know, in general, yeah. Immigration, yes, these people are, you know, it's it's not, these people are scapegoated as uh, the main horrors of, you know, a declining economy when they are not, uh, and they are used to support it from collapsing. They should be allowed to immigrate especially if they are refugees or if they come from countries which uh, are stricken by horrible poverty, usually caused by an imperialist system, you know, supported by uh, Britain and uh, other uh, powerful Western countries. Uh, but for the Conservative Party, taking a very hardline anti-immigration stance is, I think, a good step for them and their supporters.
0: move on to the next topic, um, which is the cost of living crisis. Um, So the Bank of England has recently warned that we're about to face a two-year recession um, and interest rates have been raised to 3% in an attempt to bring down soaringly high prices. Um, So my question to Oliver is that, do you think this is an effective method to address the crisis? Well, I
1: think we have to go back and I think there's two we have to assess what the causes of this crisis are. So there's the international causes, which is, um, and this is what Liz Trust always like to reference. You know, the war in Ukraine is driving up gas prices. That's one thing, the the pound's doing very badly and which makes imports much more expensive. Um, A lot of core food products are getting, becoming more expensive because Ukraine's one of the largest uh, grain exporters. And so that's not just things like bread, but also, you know, beef because cows, cows and, and milk, so they eat grain. Mm. So there's lots of international causes. But I think there's a second cause, the domestic cause, and that is a direct precipitate of conservative economic policy. The fact that this black hole in the public finances, which needs to be, needs to be filled, this is a product of increased, increased um, interest rates on the gilt bond market, where the government takes its debt, where the government makes its, uh, makes its borrowings, so I think we just have to remember and recognise before we get into into the cost of living crisis that a large part of this crisis is a result of poor government policy. Yeah. And then when it comes to the, to the crisis itself, I think it's incredibly difficult. Government's in a position where the where the international gas market they don't have any any control of that. They've imposed the cost cap, which I think almost all I think every single party came out in favour of that in different in different ways. And the fact that the the Tories have changed what how long the extension period of that that's fairly marginal to what the actual policy is but i think they're in it's an increasingly difficult position for government to solve because of the number of crises. and while the pound continues to decline mm. everything's going to become more expensive all of our imports and then when it comes to the bank of england the bank of england's role is not to improve the quality of life for people in the united kingdom
3: mm. the bank
1: of england's role is to stabilize the economy so these are two slightly separate logics, and often they do overlap. But I think if we're going to listen to the Bank of England now, which I think is probably the best decision, we should have listened to the Bank of England earlier when they clearly said that quasi fiscal strategy was going to be monetary and fiscal strategy was going to be a disaster. But I think the increase, increase in mortgage rates, it's an incredibly difficult strategy, strategy, and it's one that I think most parties agree um, there had to be fairly severe fiscal and monetary policies to be introduced to deal with the cost of living crisis. But it's, going to, it's all it's doing is it's shifting where the burdens land. We're shifting the burden from the grocery store, from your supermarket shelf. We've shifted it to mortgage payments. And that's all about who, who you're trying to appeal to and who's going to bear that cost. I think throughout all of this, it's incredibly important to remember the wealthiest are not going to bear this cost. At no stage are people talking about the top 10%, the top 15%, Buying about their lifestyle. That's a lifestyle that's protected. And that's a lifestyle that the government's going to continue to protect. That's a lifestyle that they seem to deem more valuable than the lifestyle of the vast majority of the populace. I think we have to be very careful about how we talk about things like tax and how we talk about cost of living crisis, because it's a crisis for the few, for the many. And it's not actually a crisis for the few. And it's certainly not a crisis for a man with over 700 million pounds. In his pocket, whose wife has been benefiting from non-dom status tax exile exemptions. So I think the fact that the conservatives deem it justifiable to move burdens, that's their decision. But I think it's an incredibly dangerous one for the country and one that will definitely harm the unity of British society. Thank
0: you. And when and when you were just when you were talking about the separate logics of the Bank of England's role is to stabilize the economy and the government's role is to act in to benefit people's lives. Do you think that Hunt's recent announcement um, of, like, of of the capital the rise in capital gains tax? Do you think that that is enough? Can that sufficiently help help those who are not less wealthy than those who benefit from low capital gains tax?
1: It's obvi- obviously it's it's a step in the right direction, but to blow it out of proportion and think oh the Conservatives are now all of a sudden taxing the rich. Yeah. The way that tax works is tax goes up and the people who are paying the highest rate of capital gains tax, they're only paying that on income over, I think it's somewhere in 70,000, 80,000. So they're paying the lower tax rates on all the money they've already earned. It's, it's not like you pay 50% on all, all of it. You pay it in tax bands. And as you hit those bands, tax moves up. So to think that we're now moving the burden exclusively onto the wealthiest in our society, would be to completely misunderstand how the British tax system works. And to also the way that, to talk about the Bank of England policy, I think it's very key to remember, economic policy is an incredibly complicated system. And as Quasi-Cortain found out, it's a system with variables that are t- totally unforeseen. Bank of England is trying to get inflation under control. It's trying to get back to its 2% target because it's decided that's important for growth. And it very mild. currency stability is essential for any modern economy. But I think we have to be aware that Talking about policies in isolation they come as a whole and while I'm sure the new policies of Bank of England are definitely trying to achieve a goal only time will show us what what they produce but I think we do have to be careful with tax and how we talk about it um,
2: I mean I, I I would certainly say that the cost of the living crisis has been exacerbated more by international causes I mean before the invasion of Ukraine and the And uh, the limitations in oil prices, wheat and um, all of the sorts of resources, um, there wasn't a massive cost of living crisis going on. And had it been due to Tory economic policy, I'm not quite sure which Tory economic policy he's referring to, if not the List Trust's government, which hasn't, List Trust's government ones, which actually weren't really implemented um, then this would have been more of a sustained and dramatic. I mean, this would have been more of a sustained cost of living crisis rather than just a dramatic spike after the invasion happened. Um, I think the, I think the Conservative Party is going in somewhat of the right is going in somewhat the right direction. Um, there's only what so much, that one can do um, against cost push cost push inflation caused by international wars. But in not lowering taxes, reversing list trust's tax cuts in raising interest rates, and especially put in terms of putting up mortgages um, and capital gains and everything instead of um, instead, uh, as a instead of having prices and shops go up, that is shifting it more. toward that is undeniably shifting it more to the rich um, to pay the burden for it. Um, so. The type the type of fiscal policy that the Conservative government is um, operating is somewhat of a, um, a step in the right direction, but um, I can't really see a definitive end of the cost of living crisis um, as long as the war still goes on and the way it is
0: going so you, So you see the, the war in Ukraine as the sole cause of the cost of the living crisis and that the government doesn't bear any responsibility?
2: Um. I wouldn't say it's a. I say it's a sole cause. I would say it's a. It's massively exacerbated it. Um, I say, but we we're probably going to go for. We we're probably heading for bad public finances and um, similar and similar things. Um, when we decided, when we took out lots and lots of debt during the COVID pandemic, but so that there is a certain fault of the UK government there. But I would say that the war in Ukraine is the biggest factor.
0: And Will, just coming to you, what what do you see as the most effective way to address the cost of living crisis, and how how can the government calm the financial markets?
3: Well, I mean, I would agree mostly for the cause. Uh, with Giannis, I mean, it's you know there's a giant war going on where England has induced huge sanctions onto um, a very very important. Uh, part of the world economy, and uh, it's feeling an inflationary effects. The, the companies are feel like they can, you know, boost their prices. Their profits have never been higher, uh, which sort of points to a, a source of money that you could uh, attack to get this in line. Whenever there's a uh, some kind of recession or some kind of period where. Uh, austerity policies have to be, you know, instituted. Austerity really just means taxing people, uh, taking away their benefits. People who don't have much, people who, you know, their benefits, most people's, working people's benefits, they're up for grabs. They're, you know, they're privileges that are given. The corporate wealth and private holdings of the richest capitalists in the society i mean in you know global society generally but you know britain as well it's it's not to be touched you know something like this the government has to have firm directives of price controls i would say nationalizations you know to keep them in line because these companies know that They can raise prices of goods or anything. And what will they be rewarded with? They'll be rewarded with tax cuts because the government uh, will try their way into to say, that's how the economy is going to fix itself. Eventually, once uh, the war is over, things have calmed down. I don't know how long it's going to be until the war is over, um, uh, considering the UK government. um, I think Boris Johnson specifically went over to Ukraine to uh, discourage uh, (laughs) <laughs> negotiation so if that's going to continue for a long time this this crisis uh, there's not many simple solutions to it but the solutions that are offered by both parties usually since the advent of neoliberalism are meant to shield capital from any attack on it when really i mean we should be going for the throat whenever it comes to capital in my opinion but that's just me
0: so my final question to conclude the discussion is that considering everything that has been said, should there be a general election now um, or any time sooner than, pl- than is already planned for in 2025?
1: Um, the answer is inevitably yes that I'm going to get, but I'd like to justify it and say there's a, there's a word for when a small minority, a very powerful small minority of people, such as Conservative MPs, who aren't representative of the wider populace, make the decision about who about the major decisions in a country and who is in power. And that's called an oligarchy. An oligarchy is where a much fractional minority is controlling the, the levers of power. That's what's happened with the latest conservative implementation of Sunak. That is not a democracy in which the power is given to the people. I think that only, although the way the law is written, there's, going to, there's a general election every five years, and it's at the discretion of whoever leads the parliamentary majority to be, to be the prime minister. I think having seen three prime ministers since the last general election, I think the, the right decision for the country may not be the right decision for the Conservative Party. And there's a conflict there, I think, can only be resolved with a general election as well. But it would be the sacrifice. Rishi Sunak is not going to sacrifice his Conservative Party. He's not going to sacrifice the largest Conservative majority in 20 years. And he's going to do that at the expense of the British people. I think the, the right thing, the moral thing, would be to call a general election, but it will be yet to be seen if Rishi Sunak is a man of doing the right thing and doing the moral thing.
0: Um, and do you think that the Lib Dems could offer a better vision for the UK? I mean, I think it would be pretty optimistic to say that they'd win a majority, but maybe in a coalition.
1: I think better... Uh, Definitely because the bar is so low. It's quite difficult to, be, to do worse than what we've seen over the last, over the last year
0: yeah.
1: and what we've seen from the Conservative government, in my view, since 2012. We've seen all of our social services have been in decline, significant cuts, and the economy hasn't grown at a remarkable rate. And I just, if we go back to 2012, they said, following the global financial crisis, we, we need austerity to fix the roof while the sun is shining. Well, the sun, sun stopped shining now and the roof doesn't appear to be fixed. So it's a failure on, on their own terms. And can the, can the Liberal Democrats offer a better society? Yes, because the Liberal Democrats believe in a society where everyone is enabled to get the opportunities that they can have to succeed. The government should be enabling people. This government is disabling people by stripping back the services like education, like healthcare, like housing. How are people going to grow the economy, create jobs. If mm-hmm. they're worrying about the housing, they can't get the healthcare they need and they can't get the education they need.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think the, the, the solutions don't have to be remarkably complex, but the, pro, but the ones that are being offered by this conservative, this conservative government, and I do think it's a continuous conservative regime rather than five distinct um, leaderships, are totally unsatisfactory, and we know they're unsatisfactory because when you look around Britain, they don't look like they're working.
2: Uh, we don't need a general election. Um, we each time we've had uh, each time we've had a leadership election, uh, the entire country has collectively sighed and said, "Oh God, lost another one." So I'm thinking, but the added instability of a general election, along with the risk that there could be a hung parliament or something similar, or just. Any any result which you can't predict, um, I think makes calling an election too much a, too much of a risk now when it's um, when we've got a strong conservative majority that can implement that can actually implement effective policies, um, especially when they're go- especially when they're going on tight um, monetary policy, which is quite a divergent from tri- divergent from the trust government, and um, so I'd say, in my personal opinion, I'd say. Give it give it a few years, um, see if the policies work before saying that they, before saying that they won't. Um and uh, yeah, and uh, then on the def- on the definition of the current conservative government as an oligarchy, um I'm not sure whether I agree uh with that um for a government which has had the largest majority since 1987. Um when the people did vote in 2019, it wasn't just a single issue, it wasn't Brexit and Boris or something. They voted for the Conservatives' are part in what was tradition; it has traditionally stood for pragmatism and adapting to changes. And I think that yeah, I think that to do to, to have some sort of alleviation to the cost of living crisis and the current issues that are going on, we need to stick with the Conservatives uh, until their term runs out.
0: But just coming back to what you said about um, the instability. And caused by changes in leadership, and people reacting by going, "Oh, not another one." What do you think that kind of negative language might reflect? Their views on the government and the Conservative Party.
2: I think it reflects. I think it reflects on their on their views of instability since twenty sixteen. But I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say. I'll say that the vast majority of people just want something stable. They just want. Well, if you, if, you, if you ask the average person, I'm sure that they just want some sort of relatively moderate governments <laughs> rather, than the, rather than this constant cycle of election after election after election and then throwing out governments before they even have the chance to do anything.
1: I think I've got a couple of points from what you said. And you said, I think the people, if you ask them, there is an easy solution. You can just ask the people what they want instead of guessing what they want. And that is a general election. And you said they did vote for a conservative, for a conservative party with the conservative ideology, for the conservative values. Well, it's easy. We can just ask them. And that's a general election. And you said a strong majority, and I quote, a strong majority that can implement policy. But why don't we ask the people what policies they want to have implemented? And that's called a general election. And then the first point you made against the general election is a hung parliament. Well, if the people vote for a hung parliament, that's democracy. If the people vote to not have a Conservative majority and they vote to not have a Labour majority, a hung parliament is the voice of the people. You can't assume what people want in line with what you want. I'm not saying that the Lib Dems should do this. I think we should put the Lib Dems in power. I'm only saying that we do have a populace and we can ask them. And instead of saying instability, why don't we just ask them and see what they want? Because the people do want stable conservative leadership. They'll vote for stable conservative leadership.
0: Thank you for listening to this longer podcast today. And finally, thank you to Jonas, Will, and Oliver for their interesting contributions.